Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We are going through a series currently called Important Prophecy Terms, and we have seven sets of terms that I think are very important to having a foundational understanding of before we look at an um, overview of the prophetic events that are coming up before us that are listed in the Bible. And I have 30 that I have researched, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, sharing with you uh, that cover the prophetic events that yet to take place starting from today through eternity. But as I was going through those, I realized that there are some terms that if they aren't properly understood, they can be misleading or can leave you uh, with a shortage of knowledge that would keep you from having a, a complete understanding, if you will, of God's plan and how he interacts with different groups of people. And another aspect of this that I think is important is that if you don't understand these distinctions, you can fall prey to doctrines that are being taught out there, um, not the least of which is replacement theology that basically says that the church has replaced Israel in God's plans and that the promises that God had made to Israel, this covenant-keeping God, uh, made these covenant promises to Israel, he is going to nullify those, or has, I should say, according to this doctrine, has nullified those promises to Israel because of what they did to his son Jesus 2,000 years ago. And therefore, the promises that were to were directed to Israel are now the promises of the church. And from my uh, literal reading of God's word, I can't find that anywhere in the scripture. There is a very, very clear distinction between God's dealings with Israel and God's dealings with the church and with the rest of mankind. And in no way, uh, misunderstand what I'm saying here, Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection is key to both the Jew and to the Gentile, particularly to the church. That Jesus Christ, that you know, people will say, well, no, you're telling us that the Jews are going to be saved through Abraham and has nothing to do with Jesus. That couldn't be further from the biblical truth, but that's being taught out there. So it's important that we understand these terms and have a, a biblical foundation uh, under us for these terms so that when we hear them, we know what's being spoken of and we don't just gloss over it and, and not give it a second thought. These are very, to me anyway, and I hope you'll agree with me as we go through these seven sets of terms that they're very important in understanding the difference between God's plans for Israel and God's plans for the church going forward. And I believe that the, the, the most important set of terms is the Son of God and the Son of Man and understanding 
the similarities because it both they both are Jesus, but there are very distinct differences in how they're used. And we're going to start getting in that in today's program. Over the last several programs, we have been building up a case for this Jesus to come to the earth, why he was why he was to come to the earth, how he was prophesied as coming to the earth, how the Jews were told exactly the day on the calendar, and this was told to them um, 700, 600 years before Jesus even came to the earth. They were told the day on the calendar when this, this Messiah, this promised Messiah would come to them, yet they denied him. And uh, we saw how um, God actually intervened personally, uh, verbally, I should say, twice in Jesus' ministry when it was set up to make the point very clear to the Jews that it's Jesus that you should be following, not the characters of the Old Testament. While they were important and they had their purpose, they are history. And it's now Jesus. We saw that in Matthew 3 when he had Jesus stand next to John the Baptist at his baptism in the Jordan, and God said, this is my son, referring to Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased, to make sure that the Jews didn't continue to follow John the Baptist, that it was now Jesus. And then when there was the realization that Israel had turned their backs on on, uh, Jesus, that he took a handful of the key apostles up to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and showed himself again, and God had Moses and Elijah stand on either side of Jesus. And then once again, just as he did at the Jordan in Matthew 3, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Exactly what Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy 18, 1400 years before Christ, was now being fulfilled. And the point was, it's Jesus you should be focused on not Moses, which the Jews wanted to do a lot, or Elijah, who was a key prophet in the Old Testament. So he, th- this background of Jesus has been developed, and now we want to look specifically at the distinction between the Son of God and Son of Man, and, and what does that mean to us as Bible students for having a better understanding of the Scriptures. So what I want us to do today, to kick this portion of the study of point number one off is to go to John chapter 5. I think one of the more important passages in the New Testament for helping us to understand the key terms that will uh, open our eyes up, I believe, in a great way to help to more fully understanding what God's plans are and who is involved in each aspect of his plans. So let's go to John chapter 5. We want to start out in verse 21 verse 21, and we're going to go through verse 25 uh, to start with because there's we're going to be talking about the Son of God and the Son of Man and what the differences are. Verse 21 of John 5, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he, God the Father, has given all judgment to the Son. Now that may be an eye-opener for some of you that are listening to this, 
I know when I first started studying this, it did for me because when I think about the judgments like the great white throne judgment and so forth, and you you see this description or you read this description of this man with the gray or white hair and the the flowing robes and so forth, and I've always thought, well, that's God. Well, it turns out that in all the judgments that are yet to come, they're all going to be adjudicated by Jesus, not by God the Father. And you may say, and correctly so, Jesus and God are the same. You're right, but hopefully as we've gone through so far, and you'll see as we continue on here, that there are great distinctions in how God manifests himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he did it that way purposely so that he could interact with man, even in man's fallen state, in various circumstances. And we'll, um, we're, we're actually talking about that in our question that we've been addressing at the uh, Q&A portion of each of our daily programs. We're going through that right now, as you know, if you've been following along over the last few programs. But it, the point here in 22 is that Jesus does the judging. So we need to understand that the Son does the judging. Very important to understand. Verse 23, so that, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So that's a key understanding in the in the Gospels here, that you can't know God, you can't honor God unless you first honor the Son. So those, those that you may know in your circle of acquaintances or friends who say, well, I have a relationship with God, but I'm struggling with this Jesus thing. Well, you can't. Here and in other scriptures, um, you can't have a relationship with God unless you first have a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that Jesus introduces us through our, our belief in him and his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus introduces us to his father, God. So you can't know God unless you first know his son. And because his son as it says in verse 22, is the one who's going to do all the judging of all of mankind. <clears throat> verse 24 of John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And the point here is that talking to you and me, if we hear his word, in other words, we hear it and we believe it, and it's not just a mental concept in our minds, but it's now deep in our hearts that indeed this is Jesus Christ, the Savior. He is our Lord. He is the Son of the living God. He says that through that simple belief, belief in him, you will have eternal life and you will not come into judgment. So when it says that uh, in verse 22, that Jesus will do the judging. We, of course, will be judged, but we have to understand the distinction, and that's one of the things we want to talk about, uh, and it's one of the key sets of terms here that we'll be discussing later on in this teaching series, is understanding the judgments, that when, when we, the church, because of our belief in Jesus Christ, stand before Jesus 
at what's called the Bema Seat in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bema Seat is a judgment seat, but it's going to be a judgment for works after you were saved. There will be no sin judged. And the reason no sin will be judged at our judgment is because Jesus Christ absolved us of all of that through his blood. So it's going to be a judgment associated with rewards. All the other judgments that Jesus will sit as judge will be judgments regarding sin. And that's going to be a horrible thing to understand. But we understand that because we believe Jesus, verse 24, that we believe who Jesus is, we believe the one who sent him, we are, we are guaranteed, the Holy Spirit is our guarantor, if you will, who, who, who indwells us, guarantor of eternal life, and we will not come into judgment. And we have the promise where it says we've passed out of death into life. And in effect, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you do pass from death into life because the prospect of the penalty of sin, which is eternal death, has been removed. So the death that he's talking about here is eternal death. We've passed out of eternal death into eternal life. Yes, we have a physical carnal death, but it's actually, if you read through a lot of the New Testament, when it refers to a Christian dying, it says they sleep as opposed to being dead to differentiate between an unbeliever who is dead and will go into eternal death or eternal, actually it's eternal separation from God, which is a horrible thing, as opposed to a Christian who has eternal life, eternal life in the presence of God, which is unbelievably wonderful and something that we all as Christians have to look forward to. So we pass out of death into life because because a... a um, aspect of Jesus has been presented to us. What is that aspect of Jesus? Let's look at verse 25. Verse 25, truly, truly, and of course when you see something like that, he's, if you could imagine Jesus is kind of pounding on the table. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he's talking about those that you can say that's a physical dead there, but I, I really tend to think it is, as it says in the in the verse before, we're talking about somebody who is eternally dead. In other words, they're lost in their sin because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden that has been transferred to all of humankind. And if you hear the voice of, of the Son of God, and this is the gospel of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, the fact that he's the Son of God, if you hear that message and you believe that message in your heart, those who hear that will no longer be eternally dead, but will be eternally alive. It says those who hear will live. And that's a wonderful thing. That's the aspect I want. If you could synthesize this whole thing down into a nutshell, this is it. Now, I'm not going to stop there, obviously, because the scriptures uh, in the New Testament are so rich with examples of the Son of God in action that I want you to see that so that when we see it and we cover the 30 prophetic events, 
um, you'll you'll know that hey, this is the aspect of the Son of God that brings eternal life. This is not the aspect of the Son of Man. So we see this that it's the Son of God. So who who sees Jesus as the Son of God? It would be a believer, a believer who has heard the gospel, has believed the gospel, has taken it into their heart, and firmly believes that. It's taken it from those 18 inches between heaven and hell, and the 18 inches is from your head, where if you only believe it in your head, you're going to hell because it's just an academic construct. But if you take that understanding and bring it into your heart and believe it with all your heart and soul that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did die for my sins and my sins are forgiven, that is what allows you to have eternal life. And that's something that the Son of God does. And I want to just pound on the table to make that point. It's the Son of God. All right, that's the first set of verses. And if you've got your worksheet in front of you, uh, the one that's titled Important Prophetic Terms, you'll see that that first set of uh, verses is 23 to 25 to make the point of who the Son of God is. And then I want to... um, Go down to verse 28 before we get into the Son of Man here. Verse 28 and verse 29, it says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And that's the voice uh, referred back to there in verse 25, the voice of the Son of God, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we're seeing now that this is the voice of the Son of God, and he's calling people out of the tombs. And those that heard the voice, in other words, believed the gospel, are the ones that are going to go to eternal life. But there are those that are going to be commanded to come out of the tombs who are the unbelievers, the unrighteous, And these are the ones who are going to stand before another aspect of God. And we want to understand who is or what is this other aspect of God. So now let's go back up to um, 26, verse 26 and verse 27. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and to show the distinction, and he, God, gave him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment. The authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. So the Son of God is to bring rewards and eternal life. The Son of Man is coming to execute judgment one and the same person in Jesus Christ, two majorly different manifestations. And that's what we want to explore further in our next program. But right now, we want to once again move over to our Q&A time and continue on with a question that was asked about the functioning of the Holy Spirit in the, in the tribulation period. This was asked by Rich in Indian Springs. And he was pointing out that if the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of evil, which I believe he is, the restrainer of evil, who is holding back the Antichrist, and this is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
if he's holding back the Antichrist and then he is commanded to move out of the way so that the seven-year tribulation can get started through the Antichrist, because it tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist can't come until the restrainer is removed. And if the restrainer is the Holy Spirit and he's now gone off the earth, which is what the Greek says, then how can people be saved, particularly the tribulation saints that are referred to in Revelation 20, verse 4. So we've been going through asking some questions about the functioning of not just the Holy Spirit in different times during the the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, but the triune Godhead in general. And we've been looking at God specifically, Father God, the first person of the triune Godhead, and asking the question, why doesn't God just do everything himself? Why does he work through the through Jesus? Why does he work through the Holy Spirit? And there are very good reasons for that found in the Scripture. And we were looking at Father God, and the reason that Father God is not working on a daily basis, interacting directly, directly with us as Father God is because of sin. And Father God cannot interact with sin. So we only see, based on my study, we only see uh, Father God interacting directly with mankind at the beginning of Genesis when there was no sin, and at the end of Revelation when once again there is no sin in what's called the eternal state when when sin has been done away with because Satan and, and death have been thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And we were looking at Genesis um, as an example. In Genesis chapter 1, we saw where God is referred to as Elohim, which is the plural triune Godhead, takes care of all of creation. So that's the creator God aspect of Father God, or God, the triune Godhead. And then there's a transition in chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis, where the attention is taken away from focusing on the, the mechanics of creation to dealing with the pinnacle of God's creation, which is mankind. And now we see the the reference to God changing from just Elohim to Jehovah Elohim, Jehovah Elohim, Lord God. And now we're combining the triune Godhead, the creator God aspect, with the covenant God aspect, because now God is setting up a covenant with mankind here. And what we find in chapter 2, it talks about, uh, or rather in chapter 3, going to chapter 3 in Genesis, we've now moved into the point where Adam and Eve have now fallen into sin through the temptation of the uh, the temptation of Satan and have eaten from the no- from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had told them this is the one tree you're not supposed to eat from. So their free will got them into trouble here. And it says in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 8, they heard the sound of Jehovah Elohim, Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, among the trees of the garden. So he's interacting with them personally in the garden. And then we go over to verse um, 21 in chapter 3 of Genesis, and it says, The Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, 
made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And that's where we concluded our last uh, portion of our Q&A in our last program and wanted to point out that, you know, you're, you, you may say, well, wait a minute, Adam and Eve are in a state of sin. How can God be interacting with them directly here? Well, this to me is the grace of God because we see Jehovah Elohim interacting even with sinful man, but as soon as he concludes his interactions, his dealings with Adam and Eve, you don't see Jehovah Elohim, even though it's listed thousands of times in the Bible, he does not is not interacting directly with man. He's not directing, uh, as a matter of fact, if you go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, um, it talks about um, Eve said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So you, he's no longer being talked about as Jehovah Elohim interacting with man. It's with the help of and so forth and so on. So he's interacting directly with man and woman here. And the reason he's doing it, and this to me is the grace of God, is because he has established that sin has been committed and uh, a sin against God and against his word that he has established that there is a consequence for this sin, and he's telling them what this is. He's establishing this baseline understanding with Adam and Eve, and if he does it with Adam and Eve, in effect, he's doing it with, with humankind, with the human race. He's establishing that sin has been committed. He's established that there is a consequence for this sin, and that consequence is death. Uh, they've been able to access the tree of life, which has allowed them to live forever. But they, God is now going to remove their presence. They're going, he's, they're going to be removed from the Garden of Eden so that they can no longer access the tree of life and live forever in their fallen state. The consequence is sin. But the most important thing, the most important thing, and the reason God is dealing with sinful man personally right here is he's establishing the plan of redemption. And he does that basically uh, in a very real way in verse 21 of Genesis 3 when it says, Jehovah Elohim made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So he established right then and there the sacrifice, the sacrifice of an unblemished animal. Remember, whatever this animal was that he killed, the fact is he killed it. There had been no death before this because it had been in perfection. So this animal was an unblemished, perfect state animal. It was killed, its blood was shed, and the skins of that animal were taken and formed into clothing, and he clothed them. And the key point I want to make here is the word clothed in the Hebrew is the same terminology that's used elsewhere for a putting on of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God has vindicated Adam and Eve and has made them righteous by killing this animal as the perfect sacrifice and then clothing them with the Holy Spirit. And then God, in terms of Jehovah Elohim, uh, no longer interacts directly with man, sinful man. He will do it in other ways. And that's what we're going to explore as we go forward. We're going to get into another interesting aspect starting in our next Q&A portion where we see how God interacts through the Holy Spirit. He interacts through the angel, uh, the angel of God, the pre-incarnate Christ. He interacts through the burning bush and so forth. We want to go through some of those 
And I, I'll find, I find that very interesting, and I want to share that with you going forward. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.